Greetings and welcome to episode 21 of Beyond Hua Xia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today we have one of my favorite topics. We're going to be talking about Zheng He and the maritime world. Zheng He is someone who has gained a lot of attention in the past 10, 20 years, I would say. He's uh, a name that more people are familiar with than they used to be. Uh, Zheng He, just so we know who we're talking about here, his, his, his name is not written the way that it sounds. Uh, Z-H-E-N-G is Zheng and He is H. E. Okay, Zheng He, who was this guy? There are a lot of, with popularity comes a lot of misconceptions. Let's put it that way. Um, now, Zheng He is the man who undertook seven voyages um, on behalf of a Ming Dynasty emperor from 1405 to 1433. Okay, and he took these voyages. The first couple of voyages went to Southeast Asia, places like Thailand and Vietnam and Laos, Cambodia, that area. Okay, although those nation states didn't exist back then. Um, and then the next couple of expeditions went to Southeast Asia and then continued onwards to India, or at least the coast of India. And then the last two actually went all the way to the eastern coast of Africa. Okay, so this is, this is really unique. All right, there's no other sort of precedent for going this far in Chinese history. It's something that calls for explanations. And more importantly, some context so we understand just what the heck is going on. Now, Zheng He, a lot of his recent popularity has to do with two books put out by an author whose name is known as Gavin Menzies. Okay, if you've gone to Barnes & Noble's, the bookstore, you've probably seen this guy's books on the shelves in the history section of the bookstore. Now that's quite unfortunate because almost every single professional historian at a university anywhere in the world, all right, not anywhere in the world, anywhere outside of China, because there are some professors, uh, not just in China, actually Singapore and certain places in the Chinese speaking world, um, that have tried to build upon the stuff that Gavin Menzies has uh, written and try to um, substantiate it. They want to believe in what he's saying, okay, because it makes the Chinese look really good during the Ming Dynasty, okay? What does Gavin Menzies say that Zheng He did? Well, his first book, which probably made Menzies a millionaire, was titled 1421, The Year China Discovered America. And when that sold millions of copies and made Gavin Menzies a rich man, he then followed it up, of course, with 1434, the year a magnificent Chinese fleet sailed to Italy and ignited the Renaissance. Whew. Those are some bold titles. I don't think you really need me to say anything else about the books. The titles tell you everything you need to know. Now, let's just say you're going to have to take my word on this. You're going to have to take it on faith, okay? These are rather ridiculous books that are not taken seriously by historians who actually read Chinese documents and are not interested in simply puffing up a new nationalistic line that looks into the ancient past for precedence for China's current rise today. One scholar even circulated a petition to petition libraries and telling them, university libraries, you should not shelve Gavin Menzies' book in the history section because this is fiction. No reputable scholar looks at Gavin Menzies' books and says that Zheng He discovered America or that he ever went to Italy. Okay? The idea that these expeditions were some sort of Chinese counterpart to Columbus and the Western Age of Exploration is comical. If Gavin Menzies actually read Chinese, which he doesn't, he would know that the Chinese records themselves leave absolutely no ambiguity about the original goal and what actually happened on these expeditions. And that's what this episode is going to be all about, telling you who Zheng He was, what he was really doing with these expeditions, and why they stopped all of a sudden. Let's begin with who was Zheng He. Zheng He, if you see pictures of him, type him up, you know, put him into Google and see what sort of images come up. You're going to see an image that is, you know, portrays someone who looks like a standard Chinese official, okay, of East Asian biological descent. That is erroneous, okay? Zheng He was from a Muslim family of Central Asian descent, brought 
to southwestern China. His family was brought to southwestern China, the, the, the part of China now known as Yunnan, the part of China that borders Southeast Asia. They were brought there by the Mongols. Remember, the Mongols had conquered all of Central Asia and much more than that, the Middle East as well, and China. Okay, the Mongols actually were the first East Asian force to penetrate on behalf of Chinese authority, like using the resources of the sedentary agricultural heartland to continue onwards to southwest to what is now southwestern China, you know, a little bit to the southeast of Tibet, if you're thinking on a map. Okay, they're the ones who first penetrated Yunnan. And like they did everywhere else, the Mongols under Kublai Khan liked to import dependent intermediaries from their other conquests, import them into their newly conquered territories, and rely on these people to rule in their name. And one of their favorite dependent intermediaries were Muslims and Persians and Uyghurs from Central Asia and the Middle East. You cut them off from their homeland, you know, take them into China, into East Asia, and they're utterly dependent on you and therefore loyal, just like a eunuch is. A eunuch is a form of a dependent intermediary. Okay? So Zheng He's family, originally a Muslim family in Central Asia, their city is conquered by the Mongols during their Central Asian conquests, and his family is relocated to Yunnan in the southwest, which is not under previous Chinese control. The Song Dynasty did not control Yunnan. It was not on their map. All right? And then when the, uh, um, when the Mongols are defeated by the, the, the next dynasty, a southern Han agricultural state led by Zhu Yanjiang, okay, they then defeat the Mongols in their newly conquered territory of Yunnan in the far southwest. And Zheng He is an orphan as a result of this warfare. Okay, he's orphaned and captured by the newly ascendant Ming Dynasty forces who are destroying the Mongols, kicking the Mongols out, during their conquest of Yunnan. And remember, this is where a lot of eunuchs came from. Eunuchs came from marginalized sectors of society. Because again, just like any dependent intermediary, the goal is to have someone who is totally cut off from their original family and social context and made utterly dependent on you. Okay. And Zheng He, then, is captured in war on the borderlands and turned into a eunuch. That's how eunuchs often were made, prisoners of wars from the distant borderlands, very often from ethnically different people. And he's given as a eunuch to the fourth son of the first emperor of the Ming dynasty. All right, The first emperor of the Ming dynasty, Zhu Yanjiang, has many, many sons, of course, and his fourth son is Zhu Di. And Zheng He is given as a eunuch to Judi, along with, you know, many other prisoners of wars and eunuchs. Any prince or emperor is going to have hundreds, perhaps thousands of eunuchs. Remember, the Ming Dynasty probably had something like 20,000 eunuchs in the central government. That's not even including the eunuchs that individual princes had, were, uh, uh, who attended on them. Okay, now Judi, the fourth son of the Ming founder, who receives Zheng He as a boy, you know, as a boy, he's like a teenager or something who receives him as a eunuch, because he was captured as a prisoner of war, rules what was, you know, modern-day Beijing as one of the princes of the newly formed Ming Dynasty. Okay, N Beijing is not the capital yet. The Ming Dynasty will, will establish its capital first in Nanjing in the south, in the Yangtze River Delta area, because that's where Zhu Yanjiang's power base was. This is a southern Han agricultural state. Okay? But they conquer the area, that is going to become Beijing. And Zhu Di, the fourth son, is the prince of Yen. Right? He's the prince who, his fiefdom, is in the area of Beijing. Now that's going to become important. I know I'm belaboring this issue, but it's going to become important to know that the imperial capital is originally in Nanjing, but this, this specific prince who has Zheng He as a eunuch is from Beijing initially. Okay, now, the immediate context and justification for the voyages. Alright, here's what happens. Judi, the fourth son of the Ming founder, is not in direct line of succession to the throne. When Zhu Yanjiang dies, 
I believe it's 1398. Uh, 1368 is the founding of the Ming Dynasty. Zhu Yanzhang, I believe, dies in 1398. Okay? Long before Zhu Yanzhang died, his eldest son, his oldest son, who is the crown prince of the Ming Dynasty founder, that's the future second emperor. Okay? He's supposed to succeed his father as the oldest son in primogeniture. All right? You know, to be a good Confucian, the oldest son succeeds the father. He dies young. While the emperor is still alive. Zhu Yanzhang is still alive and he has to suffer the death of his eldest son. Okay, so what does Zhu Yanzhang do? He follows the rites of primogeniture and names his eldest grandson fathered by his dead eldest son. I know this is getting complicated, but bear with me, as his successor. In other words, he wants the eldest son of his eldest son to succeed him as emperor, all right, as if the eldest son never died. He wants to be a strict adher adherent of primogeniture, passing it along to the eldest son. He, he, he doesn't say, oh, okay, my eldest son died, let's give it to the second son, or let's just give it to the most worthy of my sons, who I think is going to become the best emperor. All right? No, he doesn't. And so his grandson, by his oldest son, is in line for the throne. So when Zhu Yanzhang dies in 1398, this grandson is enthroned as the emperor. But Zhu Di, that's the fourth son, that's the prince of Yen in Beijing, Zheng He's boss, says, to hell with this. I'm the one who's most qualified to be emperor. And this stuff about, you know, giving the crown to the eldest son of your dead son, that's some bullshit right there. I'm taking over this throne and see what you're going to do about it. And so he does. He initiates a coup against his nephew. Right, his, his dead brother's son. Judy initiates a coup against his nephew, and a civil war breaks out. This is just within, you know, 30 years after the founding of the Ming Dynasty, you already have a major civil war uh, over the succession to the throne. Long story short, after many battles in and around Nanjing, the prince of Yen, Judy, actually, you know, his armies come down and they fight in Nanjing. Eventually, the imperial palace in Nanjing goes up in flames, it's under siege, and the nephew dies miserably, probably burned by fire. All right? He's known as the Jianwan Emperor. And the Jianwan Emperor, the, as the palace goes down around him, most likely he died in the fire. But... No one's 100% sure, because when you die in fire, your body gets pretty disfigured, and they don't have modern-day DNA forensic techniques. There was actually no way to know if that was truly the emperor who died. They're pretty sure it was, but no one knows, and rumors abound. And rumors are not good for the legitimacy of someone who has usurped the throne by force in explicit contravention of your father's wishes. That's bad for your future political legitimacy. People are going to always say you're not the rightful emperor, and maybe the rightful emperor never died. We don't have proof of his death. Maybe he fled abroad, and he's looking for allies in distant lands, and he's going to come back one day and reclaim his throne. So, in the meantime, until that happens, the new emperor, Zhu Di, takes the reign name of Yongle. Y-O-N-G-L-E, the Yongle Emperor. That's how we're going to talk about him from now on. The Yongle Emperor faces a serious legitimacy crisis. He's, he's usurped the throne from his nephew, who was rightfully given the throne by his grandfather. Okay. Now, the Yongle Emperor says, I'm going to relocate my capital to Beijing. That's where he was from originally. That's where his power base was from originally. And he is the one who initiates construction of the Forbidden City. Interesting fun fact. The Forbidden City is, you know, begins to be constructed under the Yongle Emperor's reign after he usurps the throne. Okay, and in 1405, just three years after his nephew has died, the Yongle Emperor sends Zheng He, we're getting back to Zheng He now, that's the Yongle Emperor's eunuch who's been with him for a long time, sends Zheng He on his first expedition, the first of seven. Okay, why Zheng He? Because this is an extremely expensive, strategic mission. These ships are going to cost a buttload of money. They have strategic geopolitical purposes. You, you, you want to entrust that to someone who's loyal 
And that's what a eunuch is. If nothing else, they're, they're expected to be loyal. And very often, dependent intermediaries are the types of people that emperors like to give you know, an inordinate amount of control and autonomy to. They entrust them with large sums of money in the treasury, okay, with military forces. Because very often, the emperor doesn't trust the people who came up through the civil service examination system. He thinks they have their own you know, power base outside of his control. They've proven they're extremely smart. They probably come from wealthy families. They they're their own constituency that the emperor sees as arrayed against him. And he balances them out with dependent intermediaries. And if it's a southern Han state, it's going to be eunuchs. If it's a northern hybrid state, it's going to be you know, Manchus or Mongols or hereditary military castes drawn from the non-Han population. Okay, so what is Judy's agenda when he goes out for his first expedition on uh, what is Zheng He's agenda when he goes out for his uh, first expedition on behalf of the Yongle Emperor in, 19, in 1405? Good Lord, I'm getting all my dates and names mixed up here. 1405. Well, again, they're very clear. One, pursue the rumors of his escaped nephew. Try to determine whether or not the Gen 1 Emperor actually died or if he survived and is in foreign lands right now plotting a comeback. Two, legitimize the Yongle Emperor's unlawful usurpation of the throne by collecting tribute from the distant rulers of the known world. Okay, the Yongle Emperor is facing doubts that he is the rightful emperor, as he should face doubts, because he's not. So he says, how can I dispel these doubts? By getting the most magnificent tribute any emperor has ever gotten before. I'm going to go further than anyone's ever gone, and I'm going to find all the old kings and chiefs and lands that are mentioned in previous texts, and I'm going to get them to renew their vows of loyalty to me. And therefore, I'll be able to tell the world, everyone in the known world acknowledges my supremacy as the emperor of the Ming dynasty. Therefore, I must be the legitimate emperor. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. And he's going to the known world, not the unknown world, okay? This isn't about exploration. This isn't, you know, going around the world looking for new routes, new trade markets, New spice, you know, markets and whatnot, northern passage and all that sort of stuff that the Europeans are doing. So we're going to go through known lands that are familiar to previous dynasties. We're going to go really far to the edge of our limits of knowledge. But nonetheless, we know where we're going. It's not into unknown lands. This is not about exploration. All right, now. The larger geopolitical and economic context of the Zheng He maritime expeditions. There are three major developments essential to understanding and properly contextualizing what Zheng He is doing. Alright, the first one is Song Dynasty and Yuan Dynasty private economic precedents. Okay, by the late Song Dynasty, meaning the 13th century, Chinese built ships and Chinese crews, maritime crews, have entered the South China Sea and the Indian Sea for the first time. Okay, These maritime routes were previously dominated by Arab and Persian merchant fleets going in the other direction as early as the Tang Dynasty, 600s through 900. As early as the Tang Dynasty, you have Arab and Persian merchants using the maritime routes of the Indian and South China Sea, and they're going to places like Guangzhou in the south. And in an earlier episode, we talked about the Chinese accounts of darker-skinned peoples the black slaves that they brought with them and that they saw in Guangzhou. Okay? Now, you know, after a few hundred years of that, the Chinese fleets, private merchant fleets initially, okay, are going in the other direction. They're reversing it. And they're going from Guangzhou and Nanjing in the south all the way to the Indian Ocean and the Persian Gulf. Okay, records suggest that Chinese ships in the Bay of Bengal, that's India, are no longer a rare sight by the year 1300 AD. All right, what are they doing there? They're trading Chinese porcelain, chiefly, for Indian spices like pepper and various fabrics, also luxury items, expensive textiles. The famous Muslim traveler Ibn Battuta 
said the following about the appeal, the attraction of Chinese porcelain as a trading commodity. He said, quote, They have remarkable properties and can fall from a great height without breaking, and hot food can be put into them without their colors changing or being spoiled. All right, Chinese porcelain, you know, rightly famous the world over, and was used as a hot trading commodity in the Indian Ocean and the Persian Gulf. At the same time as these private economic ventures under the Song and the early Yuan Dynasty, you're also seeing the establishment of the Chinese overseas communities in Southeast Asia. Today, there are enormous Chinese overseas communities in all the Southeastern, uh, the Southeast Asian countries, whether it's uh, island Southeast Asia or peninsular Southeast Asia. Okay, they are going to take root during this time period with the Chinese merchant ships, the private merchant fleets that begin to exploit the economic territory of the South China Sea and the Indian Ocean and the Persian Gulf. In fact, there is going to be so much trade among these communities in the Bay of Bengal and the Malabar coast on the southwestern tip of India that the Yuan Dynasty, that's the Mongols, will issue a temporary prohibition on the importation of luxury items from these areas in order to prevent the outflow of metallic currency. All right, that's, that's how much exchange, economic exchange there was and migration there was with Southeast Asia and South Asia. Okay, again, I'm emphasizing that so you don't think these expeditions are about exploration because they're not. There are lots of Chinese down here already. These are well-known, well-plied maritime routes in both directions. The second major thing we need to know about for context is the Mongol Yuan Dynasty's political and economic initiatives in these oceans, in what they refer to as the South Seas. Kublai Khan, who establishes the Yuan Dynasty in 1268, I'm sorry, 1279, 1279 to 1368 is the Mongol Yuan dynasty. Kublai Khan will take official control of this private Song dynasty trade, those private merchant fleets, put it over official government oversight, and he'll add diplomatic envoy missions, very similar to what Zheng He is going to do later. Now, first and foremost, that's economically profitable, to be sure. Okay, he also wants to manage it to make sure not too much metallic currency is going out, make sure we're bringing in just as much money as is going out. All right, balance the trade deficit. But the Mongols, Kublai is also doing this for very strategic reasons. Why is he sending diplomats to Southeast and South Asia? The Mongols were very nervous about the extent, the stability of their political control in southern China. Remember, they started their conquest in the north, and it took the Mongols a long time to conquer China south of the Yangtze River. The Song Dynasty held out for a very long time there. The Mongols' strengths on horseback and the open steppe in the north was not as much of an asset in the south, and they had to rely more on Chinese armies that allied with them to help them conquer Song armies in the south, which is much more mountainous and you know filled with water. You need a navy to take the south, and you know not surprisingly, the Mongols didn't really have a well-formed navy. Okay, so the stability of Mongol control in southern China is never really all that much assured, and sending sea voyages down to the the, the South China Sea, south of Guangzhou and all that, that was a way of helping to keep tabs on their southern territories. Okay, Kublai also wanted a sea route to communicate with one of his allied Mongol leaders. Remember, very quickly, by the time Kublai has established the Yuan Dynasty in China, uh, Genghis Khan's empire across Eurasia is already fragmented into multiple states led by his sons and grandsons. Okay, Um, and Central Asia is taken over by what's known as the Chagatai Horde, okay? And Persia, Iran, parts of the Middle East, that's the Ilkhanat Horde. There's also the Golden Horde, north of both of those. All right, so Kublai has friendly relations with the Ilkhanat, which is in Persia, the Middle East. But the overland routes to communicate with his ally are blocked by the Chagatai Khanat, in Central Asia. So Kublai, in order to communicate with his Persian Ilkhanat ally, the only way he can, he, he, he can get to Iran, to Persia, is by sea. Okay? 
So that's one of the main reasons why he begins to send uh, uh, maritime diplomatic envoys down there as well. He also wants to maintain a, a chain of supply with his Persian and Arab dependent intermediaries that come from the, uh, uh, Central Asia and the Middle East. And then, of course, the Mongols are just downright ambitious. Okay, All the Mongol rulers are trying to get all the known world and the unknown world to submit to them. Right, it's Kublai Khan who's going to send fleets to Japan, try to conquer Japan through Korea as well, and it's going to fail miserably. One of the few, one of the few mil disastrous military defeats that the Mongols ever suffer. So Kublai himself, during his reign, Kublai's reign is like the, uh, 12, 1279, I think it goes to like right around 300 or so. He rules for like 20 years or so in the late 13th century. He sends 14 official envoys via the southern maritime routes to Southeast and South Asia, and brings back diplomatic representatives to Beijing, which is the Mongol capital, from 10 different kingdoms in South and Southeast Asia. Again, not exploration. <laughs> okay, the Mongols before the Ming Dynasty already knew that there were diplomatic relations that the Mongols had established with local rulers and kingdoms in these areas. Okay, what did Kublai's diplomatic envoys in South and Southeast Asia do? The exact same thing Zheng He would eventually do. They collected oaths of loyalty and tributary gifts. They granted Chinese titles to local rulers, which was something that was prestigious for those local rulers to receive. They engaged in some trading, and then they fought whenever they felt like the local people disrespected them, or sometimes the locals would ask them to intervene in a local civil war saying, hey, here's a nice big army, a fleet, maybe we can get them, we can, we can bait them into our own civil war, our own local affairs, and they'll back one of us against our rivals. And then finally, the third point of con uh, context we need to know to understand the Zheng He missions. The Ming Dynasty, they're the people who succeed the Mongols, the Mongol Yuan Dynasty. The Ming Dynasty had also undertaken overland conquests in the south. Okay, the Ming Dynasty wants to conquer all the land in East Asia that the Mongol Yuan before them had conquered. Okay, at the same time that Zheng He is growing up in Yunnan, the first Ming emperors are conquering the southwestern part of, the, you know, well, not China, because it isn't part of China yet. They're, con they're, they're, they're conquering Yunnan. They're kicking Mongol forces out, they conquer Yunnan, they capture Zheng He as a boy, and they even go so far as to establish a short-lived Ming Dynasty province in Vietnam. From 1406 to 1428, Vietnam is a province of the Ming Dynasty. Okay? So you think, scale this back from a bird's-eye perspective. The Yuan Dynasty and the Song Dynasty before it represent a southern overland and maritime expansion away from the traditional northern orientation of the northern hybrid state. Okay? Especially after Kublai Khan is blocked off from Central Asia and Siberia by the Chagatai and the Golden Horde, his rivals. Okay? And this southern orientation will be scaled back after Zheng He, but the legacy of this southward push on the part of the Song Dynasty and the Yuan Dynasty and the early Ming Dynasty still exists in China today with the retention of Yunnan. Yunnan is basically Southeast Asia, but it's a part of China. Yunnan, Guangxi, these areas in the far southwest. In 1373, the Ming founder Zhu Yanzhang cautioned against too much southern expansion at the expense of the northern nomad threat. He saw what was going on here. All his predecessors, the Mongols, the Song Dynasty before him, and then what happened under his own watch as well. And he said, you know what? We're going too far to the south. The Huaxia civilization has always been threatened first and foremost from the north, the northern nomads. What are we doing? Devoting so much resources to the south. He said the following, quote, the overseas foreign countries like Vietnam, Champa, Korea, Siam, Liuqiu, uh, that's the Ryukyus, the Western and Eastern Oceans, and the various small countries of the Southern Barbarians are separated from us by mountains and seas and are far away in a corner. Their lands would not produce enough for us to maintain them. 
their peoples would not usefully serve us if incorporated into the empire. If they were so unrealistic as to disturb our borders, it would be unfortunate for them. If they gave us no trouble and we moved troops to fight them unnecessarily, it would be unfortunate for us. He's just saying, you know, there's no need for us to be involved in the affairs of these distant far-off countries. I am concerned, he said, that future generations of rulers might abuse China's wealth and power and covet the military glories of the moment to send armies into the field without reason and cause a loss of life. May they be sharply reminded that this is forbidden. As for the barbarians who threaten China in the north and west, they are always a danger along our frontiers. Good generals must be picked and soldiers trained to prepare carefully against them. Zhu Yanzhang here is railing against you know, meddling in the affairs of distant southern powers. It's a waste of resources. It's going to be a drain on our treasury. There's not a whole lot we can gain from it. And besides, we need to worry about the northern nomadic threat. Yes, we defeated the Mongols and kicked them out of the heartland, but the Mongols didn't disappear. They're still up there. And there's a lot of nomadic tribes up there as well who are just waiting. They're just itching for an opportunity to invade us again. And he's going to be proven right. The Manchus will ally with the Eastern Mongols and they will conquer the Ming Dynasty in the 17th century. That's absolutely what will happen. Okay. The Yongle Emperor understands, to a certain extent, the importance of the nomadic threat. That's one of the reasons and why he decides to move the capital from Nanjing to Beijing. Although, of course, it was already his own base of power as well, so he wanted to stay up there. Okay. But the Yongle Emperor is disobeying his father's commands when he decides to invest in the Zhenghe expeditions. Okay. So we see this swinging geographic pendulum when southern agricultural states like the Ming and the Song get big. Those are the two largest southern agricultural states, the Ming and the Song. When they get big and prosperous, they look to the southern seas, the maritime routes, for economic and political opportunities because the north, the domain of Mongols and Manchus and Khitan and Jurchens, the north is hostile and inaccessible to them. Okay, another way of putting it is to say that the Song Dynasty and the Ming Dynasty, these southern Hong agricultural states, the most successful of them, will create so-called, quote-unquote, southern hybrid states. <laughs> Instead of northern hybrid states, southern hybrid states in a southern Silk Road maritime route on the ocean when the north is blocked off to them. Okay? And the threat of the North is epitomized in 1449 at the Battle of Tumu, just 15 years after the last Zhenghe expedition. The Zhengtong Emperor reorients the priorities of the court at Beijing and says we can't keep doing these wasteful expeditions to the south because the Mongols are chomping at the bit to conquer Beijing. And he says, I'm going to solve the Mongol problem. A rash young man takes an army out into Mongolia and suffers the greatest humiliation of any Chinese emperor ever. He is captured alive by the Mongols and held hostage for 10 years. And his brother is made emperor in his place. And when the Mongols realize that the Chinese, that the Ming dynasty just set up his brother in his stead, they release the Zhengtong emperor. Then there's two emperors in Beijing. And of course, that's not going to end well. And they end up fighting among each other until one of them dies. Okay, but that symbolizes the reorientation of the Ming dynasty towards the northern threat and away from the southern orientation. All right, but for a period of several hundred years, when the northern nomads were not in ascendancy, okay, with the exception of the Mongols, who were very insecure about their southern conquests, okay, and were looking to the south as well, um, you know, for four or five hundred years or so, you see a really decided push towards the southern seas. And Zheng He is a part of that. All right, that's the context you need to understand what Zheng He is doing. What is Zheng He doing? The exact same thing his Yuan predecessors did, his Mongol predecessors did. He's, pro he's promoting his boss, the Yongle Emperor. He's trying to collect tribute gifts from any local chief or ruler in Southeast Asia or India 
or the Middle East or even east of coast of Africa who is willing to give tribute. Okay, he brings back a giraffe at one point as a tribute gift. There's this wonderful picture. Type in, you know, Chinese painting of giraffe on Google. You'll see it. It's a gorgeous picture. Very striking of a giraffe that is sent to the Ming court as tribute to the Yongle emperor. Zheng He very often will intervene in local civil wars. He'll show up, uh, you know, in Thailand or something, and he'll say, where is so-and-so who paid tribute to the Mongol Yuan emperor? Now we've come back and we want to renew his vows of loyalty. And they'll find out that that, that that ruler's descendants from a century ago have been overthrown. And a rival, power, uh, a, a rival chief is now in power. He'll say, what? We recognized him as the legitimate power. And they'll intervene and try to restore the power of the guy who, you know, recognized the last Chinese emperor. So they get involved in local civil wars all the time. In other words, they fight. Whenever they land somewhere and they encounter a hostile reception, whoever's in power isn't interested in having relations with them, and says, F you to the, to the Yongle emperor, they attack him. Bloodshed occurs. And then on the side, he, incur- he engages in a little bit of trade. Let's have Zheng He's own report. Summarize what he did. Quote, When we arrived in the foreign countries, barbarian kings who resisted transformation and were not respectful, we captured alive. And bandit soldiers who looted and plundered recklessly, we exterminated. Because of this, the sea routes became pure and peaceful, and the foreign peoples could rely upon them to, uh, sorry, and the foreign peoples could rely upon them and pursue their occupations in safety. What Zheng He is clear as day, what Zheng He is doing, okay? There's no mystery about this at all. He sees himself as, a, as an agent of the known world's police power, right? Like United States today, people complain about the United States, you know, act, 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 acting as though it's the, the policeman of the world intervening all over. That's what Zheng He sees himself as doing. We're going to go out and we're going to intervene in local conflicts, put up, you know, prop up rulers that we, that we think are going to be friendly to us, and meddle in the affairs of all these other states, all to, you know, prop up our own legitimacy and our own political interests. Anyone who resisted transformation, kingly Confucian transformation, we captured alive. Anyone who fought us, we exterminated. He used the word exterminated. We killed them. And then we made the land safe for everyone. Oh, isn't that so altruistic? Let's look at some of the list of the military engagements on just the first three expeditions alone that Zheng He gets involved in. 1406 to 1407, he defeats the pirate, the overseas Chinese pirate, uh, Chun Zui, in the Straits of Malacca. 1411, he captures the Sri Lankan ruler, Vijaya Bahu VI, and takes him back to China. Actually takes a ruler from Sri Lanka that they capture in battle and takes him to China for display. In 1414, he defeats the local usurper, Sikander, and intervenes in the civil war in Sumatra. Zheng He's willingness to intervene in local affairs and bear arms and fight on behalf of whoever he thought his ally was going to be were so well known that local chiefs start to try and trick and bait him into getting involved in local conflicts in hopes that they can exploit his presence in their favor. Were these expeditions about exploration? Hell no! All the lands and peoples visited were known to the the maritime fleets of the Mongol Yuan Dynasty before the Ming Dynasty even came to power. The whole point was to reclaim oaths of loyalty from peoples who had been known to pay tribute to the Mongol Yuan Son of Heaven. Now after the sixth expedition and the death of the Yongle Emperor, the last expedition in 1433 to 1434, is sent out precisely due to the new emperor's fear that these known states who had paid tribute to his father, the Yongle emperor, were no longer sending in tribute. And he says, this hurts my legitimacy, it hurts my status. If the Yongle emperor had all these distant kings and chiefs paid tribute to him, then I need those same ones or I'm not as good as the Yongle emperor. So he sends out one last expedition. Zheng He, again, is still alive, sends it out under Zheng He, the most trusted, you know, trustworthy and loyal eunuch he can imagine, to go out and find these kings who paid tribute to the Yongle Emperor. Okay, the European ships that are soon to, to, to you know, 
go out throughout the oceans of the world, they were exploring in a sense so they could find a quicker route to India. A lot of it was about that. Indian spices, they're trying to find a quicker route. The Chinese know exactly where India is. They've known it for a long time, and they go there frequently. Okay. And on the final voyages, the Chinese even decide, the Ming Dynasty even decides that they're going to go to Africa. They've gotten proclamations of loyalty and tribute from Southeast Asian rulers and South Asian rulers and Middle Eastern rulers. Why not keep going? And they keep going to the east coast of Africa. And that's extraordinary that they go that far. That is unprecedented. They hadn't gone that far before. But again, it wasn't about exploration. It was about, you know, I want a new and shiny kingdom that I can say paid tribute to us, to me, the son of heaven. Because the ones from Southeast Asia and India are getting a little old. The luster is wearing off of those. We need some new ones. Okay, and when they go to, to, to the east coast of Africa, they're doing the exact same things. It says, quote, a report, Zheng He's report, from when he arrives, arrives there at the kingdom of Brawa. He says, quote, in exchange for the gifts of grace from our own empire, their leaders have come forward to offer tribute with their local products. Again, Motives, agenda, clear as day. We give them gifts of grace from our empire, and they come forward and pay us tribute, kowtow on the ground, and then we get to say that the king of the kingdom of Brawa in the east coast of Africa, well, they didn't talk, mention as the east coast of Africa, also acknowledges the legitimacy of the son of heaven of the Ming dynasty. Last note of empirical interest. How big were these ships? This is sort of a, you know, the popular imagination has taken off now um, and thinking about how big these ships were. You'll often see the claims that these are the largest ships, the largest fleets the world has ever known. Um, you know, 450-foot behemoths of the popular imagination and many amateur mainstream reports now uh, will we'll, we'll talk about the ships in these dimensions. This data of these enormous ships and fleets comes from dubious source material that was first written 200 years after the expedition stopped. That's a very long time. Okay, we now know, you know, there are actual scholars who have devoted themselves purely to understanding what the actual size of these ships were. We now know that the Zhenghe fleet was composed of very large ships, and large fleets, numbers of ships, and men on them, but they were no larger than the European fleets of their day. Okay, the ships were between 150 to 200 feet. Okay, the fleets were composed of anywhere between 48 ships to 250 ships, and they could have up to 27,000 men staffing all of these ships. Alright, those are big numbers, but they are comparable to the numbers of major big European fleets. Okay, research now shows that the technology simply did not exist to exceed the length of 300 feet for any ship until the 19th century Industrial Revolution makes it possible to, to manufacture iron triangular brace strappings. Okay, the laws of physics just did not allow wooden ships that large until after the Industrial Revolution and after you, 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 you learn the ability to bind two tall trees firmly together as a mast, hole, uh, a mast pole, okay, it's, it's simply not possible. It defies the laws of physics that were available at, and the technology that was available at that time. And that's not a knock on Jung Ho. They were enormous ships that required, you know, tons of trees and lots of money. It was very, you know, wasteful as far as money was concerned. Um, and these fleets were enormous. They inspired awe wherever they went. But they weren't like, you know, superhuman, unprecedented, never-before-seen ships. Okay, that's simply false. Now, the legacy of Zheng He is very contentious, and it's gone up and down over the, over the decades, over the centuries. Okay, the end of the expeditions, from a strategic point of view, the end of the Zheng He expeditions did mean that the Chinese dynasties suffered a loss of intelligence about India and the political developments going on in India after the last Zheng He expedition came back. That's 1434. Okay? The Portuguese uh, 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 round the Cape of Good Hope in 1488. That's just 50 years later. And they start the European colonization of India just 50 years after Zheng He comes back. 
Now, although there's private trading going on, there is no longer an official Ming Dynasty and later Qing Dynasty presence in the South China Sea or even the or, or uh, the Indian Ocean. The Chinese will know almost nothing about what the British are doing in India and their rise in influence and power there until the Opium War, and then it's too late. We have a whole episode later on in which we'll talk about. Uh, uh, the knowledge that the Qing dynasty had of what the British were doing in India, or we should say lack of knowledge about what they were doing. Uh, we're going to go into that in great detail later. Okay. Um, now, why was there so much confusion about what Zheng He actually did? Why the expeditions were sent out and why they stopped? Um, well, what happened is after Zheng He's last expedition, you he faced the hostility of the Confucian scholars in the bureaucracy, all right, the very people that the Yongle emperor and most emperors don't trust, um, they outnumber the eunuchs ultimately, okay, and they have the power to leave records to write the official histories, and they were very, very mean <laughs> and cruel to Zheng He's legacy, okay. Remember, between the the Chinese who passed the civil service examination system and their rivals at court, the eunuchs, there is significant professional competition and ideological aversion to the other side. Okay, From the perspective of the Chinese scholars who have passed the exams, they look at the eunuchs and they say, from an ideological perspective, they're not filial. Their bodies have either been voluntarily or involuntarily mutilated. The end result is the same. All right, they've mutilated their body, they're unable to reproduce, and they cannot fulfill their basic filial duty towards their parents of having sons and carrying on the family line. Right, ideologically, that's perverse. I said, you know, I had, to, I, I, I had to work 30, 40 years of intense study of the Chinese Confucian classics and then beat out unbelievable competition to get my Jinshu degree and get a post in the imperial bureaucracy, and all you had to do is get your penis cut off, and, you're, and you have the exact same influence and power at court as me? To hell with that! Okay? Intense jealousy and rivalry between eunuchs and the civil bureaucracy. Okay? And so the negative image that we have of eunuchs comes from the people who left most of the historical records, the civil service exam graduates, the Confucian scholars who saw them as a perversion of nature and predisposed to abuse power when they get it. And they didn't earn that power in the first place. They were just foisted into it. And they said, for every eunuch in power, that's one less job for a jinshir degree holder like us who actually earned our position. So what did the Confucian scholars did? They wrote the history after Zheng He. They were very expensive expeditions, so the Confucians condemned the voyages as wasteful and pointless. The product of a vain emperor going, you know, spending the resources of his kingdom to lavish excess just to serve his own vain glory. And they said, you know, we should never do this again. This is, this is not a good use of our resources. We need to look to the people's welfare. Keep them from starving and whatnot. We don't have money and resources for this sort of stuff. Plus, the Mongols, 15 years after the last expedition, did capture the Zhengtong Emperor alive. That was sort of a reminder about how, hey, hey, you know all this southern orientation and progress we've been doing? We need to look back to the north <laughs> again, or the Mongols are going to conquer us. And even though they did look back to the north and pulled back from the South Seas, uh, the northern nomads ended up conquering them anyways. <laughs> okay. So the voyages were largely forgotten for a very long time, many centuries. The Zheng He voyages were forgotten until the role of Western maritime power and exploration became held up as one of the reasons why Western Europe achieved such ascendancy and spearheaded the Industrial Revolution and became so strong. And then it was thought, whoa, maybe it was the Western Navy, the Western maritime expeditions that stimulated the rise of the West. And then these scholars in the 19th and 20th century look back and said, did China ever have anything similar? Oh, look, Zheng He. Look what he did. Well, that's similar, isn't it? And they said, oh, this was China's lost chance or an alternative path not taken for China. We had a chance and we didn't do it. And then they would blame the Confucian bureaucracy as an ossified, outdated 
traditional China that wasn't interested in exploring the outside world. And the maritime expeditions of Zheng He, or at least the repudiation of the maritime expeditions of Zheng He, became equivalent to the Great Wall as a symbol of China's traditional inward-looking isolationist civilization. And if you've you know, gotten this far in the podcast, you know that that's certainly not the case. All right, China, the East Asian heartland, was never inward-looking isolationist. It was always in communication with the peoples in every single direction. Okay, but it, became, it becomes useful for certain ideological agendas at different times to claim that and then look in the past to find examples that selectively support your position. And that's exactly what happened in the past 20 years or so, in which Zheng He's expeditions have been reinterpreted once again to accommodate, to reflect China's rise in power and prominence today. And Gavin Menzies is a part of this. He's feeding this whole rise of peaceful China. And look, they have a precedent for their current uh, 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 rise today. There's a precedent in the past. It was Zheng He. And that was a positive alternative that the Chinese undertook 600 years ago. It was an alternative to the, to the Western construction of the world. The Westerners were rapacious and aggressive. The Portuguese, the Spanish, the British, they bloodshed wherever they went. Always profit, profit, profit. But look, if we look back at Zheng He, they were peaceful envoys who visited and traded with the locals and then they left. The PRC Vice Minister of Communications, Xu Zuyuan, in 2004, on the eve of the 600th anniversary of the first Zheng He expedition, said, quote, These were friendly diplomatic activities. During the overall course of the seven voyages to the Western Ocean, Zheng He did not occupy a single piece of land, establish any fortress, or seize any wealth from other countries. <clears throat> wrong, wrong, wrong. In the commercial and trade activities, he adopted the practice of giving more than he received, and thus he was welcomed and lauded by the people of the various countries along his routes. Reading the quotes of politicians, no matter what country they come from, usually makes me want to throw up, and that's one of them. Sorry, it's not a bias against a Chinese diplomat. If an American diplomat was quoting the words of George Washington to serve some present-day agenda, I'd be just as sickened by it. All right, this is historical revisionism, looking at the past, finding examples, distorting them, having a superficial understanding of what happened, and then saying, look, this is a precedent for what we're doing now. Uh, no one needs to fear the rise of China because we're just doing what Zheng He did. When we do it, it's peaceful. When the West did it, it was rapacious and evil and soaked in blood and all about profit. Give me a fucking break. Okay, so be on guard when you're out there. There are many people who have a political agenda and they want to use history to serve that agenda and they will prey on gullible minds to make money <laughs> or to further the interests of a political agenda. But you are gullible no more after this episode. Um, all right, next episode, we're going back to land when we talk about modes of travel in pre-modern China. I hope you'll join me. Music